0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A Burlington man continues to worry about his family in Gaza. Also on the docket today, wartime homes, Hamilton's LRT, its pioneer three cent a liter day, Canada's time off tax, and local singer Susie McNeil. The GMH podcast begins now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It was a
0: big vote, a non-binding resolution. To be exact, at the United Nations, that called for, and Canada voted in favor of this, called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. And so the U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly in favor of this resolution.
2: The result of the vote is as follows. 153 in favor, 10 against. 23 abstentions.
0: The resolution came after the U.S. vetoed a similar resolution at the U.N. Security Council last week. So long story short, it doesn't look like anything is going to change in Gaza right now. Meantime, there is a Burlington man who has family in that war-ravaged part of the world and says he needs help getting his family out of Gaza. So he shared a post on Instagram basically saying that his family is in the region, desperately trying to get them out. Firas Arafat, Burlington business owner who has family in Gaza, joins us once again here on Good Morning Hamilton. Faras, good morning.
3: Good morning, how are you?
0: I'm good. When was the last time you spoke with your family?
3: It was yesterday. I'm not able to speak to them in person. Uh, There's no communication lines. They are sending me uh, texts by WhatsApp or like messages. Whenever there is connection, So I just hear from them uh, now and then just a of information.
0: Where are they now and how are they doing?
3: They are still in Gaza and Rafa in the southern border near the border where they evacuated uh, about two months ago. That was the fourth evacuation for them. And to this day, they are still sheltering in that uh, house near Rafa. Uh, And unfortunately, like right now, they are out of food, out of uh, water. There's no electricity. Like the situation is, like, I couldn't believe how that it can get worse. Last time, it did get worse. It's so
0: much worse than it was a few weeks ago. You shared on Instagram the other day, friends everywhere, I'm trying to get my family out of Gaza. I need to find a way to add my dad, brother, and pregnant sister-in-law on the exit list of the Gaza-Rafa border. Please let me know if you know of any way or connection that could help. Please, have you received any response?
3: I have. I have been getting some messages from people just doing suggestions applying for visas or sending me to a different group to for support but there is nothing concrete and-
0: Last we spoke, you mentioned that uh, your mother and father were not of uh, the best help. How are they doing?
3: They are not great. My mom, luckily, uh, my mom managed to leave Gaza, so I managed to uh, have her out. However, my dad is getting really worse. Like uh, I was uh, hearing from my brother that they thought that he had a heart attack the other day because his mental and health situation is deteriorating so fast. He's right now not talking to anyone. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's just, I don't know what to say. He's just in a bad bad place right now.
0: How was your mom able to get out?
3: So my mom has a Jordanian passport and the Jordanian uh, embassy uh, managed to coordinate for her to get out. And that's what I'm trying to find a way for my dad and my brother to get out and my pregnant sister-in-law and all of them right now uh, are basically, the only way to, to exit Gaza is to have your name uh, on this list, on the exit list in Gaffa. And there has to be a coordination between Israel and Egypt to get the name on the list. So this is what I'm trying to accomplish right now, just get their name on the list
0: and get them out of there. Ross Arafat is a Burlington business owner. His family is in Gaza. He heard his mom was able to get out, but his father, his brother, or his sister-in-law, who is pregnant, still in the war-torn region, and he's trying to get them on the list to get out through the Rafa crossing. Are, are they right at the crossing? Are they within walking distance of it?
3: They are They are within about five minutes' drive from the crossing. So, yeah, last time I listened from them, they are about five minutes' drive from the crossing. They. And they see it then, uh, the other day, uh, just as uh, a tip of here from information, uh, we were willing to pay people. So we actually paid someone and they got scammed. And that person took $2,000 US from them to get their names on the list, but they didn't. And, and now that we are working with someone else who's taking $5,000 to have their name on the list, this is how desperate people are right now in Gaza. Well, that is we are paying money is- that we don't have to get our names on this list. This is how difficult and unbelievable situation is in Gaza right now.
0: If someone has a really good suggestion or maybe has um, uh, gotten another of their family on this list, how can people reach you?
3: Uh, They can email me. I'm I'm happy to be emailed at fras.rfas at gmail.com or I can be reached at
0: Excellent. We will certainly do that. Faras, thank you for your time. Best of luck. We're praying for you.
3: Thank you so much, sir. Thank
0: you. Faras Arafat is a Burlington business owner. As you heard, his family in Gaza, he's trying desperately to get them out. It's it's not easy, clearly not easy, being scammed. His mother with a Jordanian passport was able to flee that area. Uh, but his dad, his brother, his pregnant sister-in-law still In Gaza, that is a very, very sad scenario.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: We're talking about housing here on Good Morning Hamilton. Yesterday, we heard from Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser, who was talking about using what worked many years ago and putting a modern twist to it. It provides an extraordinary opportunity to use the solutions of the past to uh, overcome uh, challenges that we face today. We want to create designs that can actually be built quickly and can be built cheaply without compromising on quality or sustainability. The difference this time around is these are pre-approved designs for whether it's a multiplex, student housing, housing for seniors, small to medium scale residential properties as opposed to these bungalow or one and a half story wartime homes. The question is, Is this going to work? Is this going to cure our housing crisis? Let's ask an expert. Frank Clinton is a senior research fellow at the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Frank, good morning. How are you?
4: Uh, Good morning, Ron. I'm fine. Thank you.
0: Your thoughts on this idea from the federal government to harken back to what worked post-World War II? Can it work again?
4: Uh, I, su- I suggest it's a publicity ploy. It's something to get some publicity, that they're doing something and it doesn't cost much. And they're certainly getting the publicity. <laughs> but no, it will not do very much at all.
0: And why do you say that? What, what's, what's up with this well, plan that's not going to work? The,
4: wor- the world is quite different. Back, back after the Second World War, uh, we built all kinds of housing we had on, in the suburbs, on land. And, and you could have standardized housing. You built neighbor, neighborhood after neighborhood with standardized housing. Uh right now uh uh we 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 have a very big shortage of service land and, and builders can't get the um uh, um the mass production required to do that kind of housing. Uh for example in Hamilton, they don't want to even have land at all for single detached houses or semi detached houses. Uh, they want to you know, if the infill. And where where it breaks down is first of all, when they talk about pre approved, I'm not sure what that means because the federal government can't pre approve it. Uh, provincial governments don't pre-approve it. It's the municipality, and it gets down to the neighborhoods. So we're talking infill housing. I mean, can you imagine the infill if, if you had a standardized um, block of you know uh, structure that uh, didn't what was totally out of character for neighborhoods, what the neighbors would be saying? They wouldn't go for it. So I, I doubt very much if you'll get municipalities to go along with this for every neighborhood. Uh, the only place that really makes sense is uh, in, in the suburbs but even then, we have, well, have very large builders now. If we have their own standard uh, stock of architectural stylings uh, for housing, and they know what they're doing, so all they need is if they could build 50 houses in a row and have all the trades come along and, and, and work on those houses at the same time, you know, one house to the next house, the next house, they'd be very efficient. That's the way it used to be. Now we don't have the land, so they have to do very small projects, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, it's very hard to standardize those.
0: Sounds like a, you know, square peg, round hole kind of scenario. And, you know, another issue that I think needs to be addressed is there are some, maybe many developers who are looking at their current developments, looking at where interest rates are right now and pressing pause on these projects. So you can have pre-approved designs up the yin-yang. They're not going to build it if the return on investment is not there.
4: Yeah, well, that, that's a short-term phenomenon. You know, interest rates are going to be coming down. Incomes will grow. Uh... Uh, and, and, uh, so, so prices will rise, uh, uh, and, and builders will uh, see making money again. So right now, it, yeah, it's temporarily, uh, that they're, they're putting pauses on projects, but you don't see anybody selling their portfolio of land or portfolio of sites. Uh, you know, they're hanging on to them. They're just waiting, playing the waiting game.
0: And, and, but in terms of building homes faster, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if there's a pre-approved design, if they're not going to build, they're not going to build.
4: Uh, no. But the pre-approved design is not the important thing. What For developers, the most important thing is to get, the, get that land zoned and ready to go, got all the approvals in place. So when the market does pick up, the design part is a very small part of the house or the dwelling or the apartment building, whatever we have. Uh, it's a very small part of the process, so so it's it's uh, you know it's taking the, the focus off what what it should be, which is to get land land ready to go and have an inventory of land ready to go. So when the market does get better again, uh, the builders can developers can just go go ahead and start building, selling and building.
0: Yeah, and how much? I mean, how much time and money is saved with having a pre-approved design? I mean, it doesn't take that long to make a design or cost that much, right?
4: Well, uh it depends, I mean, you know, because we're talking uh, a range of housing types, you know, not just single-detached houses, you know, talk about an 80-story apartment building or a 40-story apartment building, but the other part of that and it has to be designed for the site and and so on. Um but the other part of it is is that uh, uh that uh developers just don't really want to, you know, they they have their own designs, they have to the, the, ready to go, uh so so it's not that this will help much at all
0: we got about a minute left. Is there one thing the government should be doing or, bu- or builders or developers should be doing to cure this crisis? Uh,
4: builders and developers, they respond to the marketplace. So if there's no demand, the demand is limited, uh, they, they, will, um, they will hold off. Uh, the big, biggest thing uh, it's not the developers so much, it's municipalities. We've got to have an inventory of sites ready to go. Uh, when the market turns around, and right now we don't, particularly for lower-density housing. Like uh, Hamilton, for example, another one, they, they just the council just again said, we're not going to have urban expansion, so therefore they're not going to build single-detached houses in Hamilton, and that's where the demand is, for single-detached, semi-detached, and townhouses. So you've got to have land ready to go for that, and it's more the municipality
1: than the developer.
0: Frank, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the day.
1: Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Hamilton's LRT subcommittee met earlier this week, and it was an interesting meeting because they received some advice from a former top administrator in Waterloo region in uh, what was called a lessons learned report. And as many of you know, Waterloo region has a, a really vibrant and successful LRT line, much more so than what Ottawa has developed. It's That one has just been plagued with a number of issues. Uh, Michael Murray was the CAO in Waterloo. And he, he, he recommended a number of things, including, you know, don't forget about streetscaping and landscaping to, you know, make this LRT route vibrant. Because I would wager, and this is not a criticism of Metrolinks, they're in the business of building transit systems. Uh, you're going to get a really functional transit system. But if you want to build a beautiful urban realm, um, probably the city is going to have to invest some money in it. Sounded like a really insightful meeting. One of those people who were there was John Poldenko, counselor for Ward 8 and a member of the Hamilton LRT subcommittee uh, with the city of Hamilton, who joins us now on GMH. JP, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. So what lessons has Waterloo learned that really caught your attention during this meeting on Monday?
5: I thought it was a really good overview of an LRT system that is is held up as being an overwhelming success in Ontario. You know, we hear a lot of negativity, as you mentioned, about uh, Ottawa and also the Eglinton Crosstown in Toronto, uh, the problems in Ottawa, the delays in budget in uh, in Toronto. But the Kitchener Waterloo Ion system uh, has really stood out as a as a major success. So it was it was great to get that insight for somebody who is intimately involved with that project for things that we can take away and implement here in Hamilton. A few things that stood out for me is just the overwhelming economic uplift that came in Kitchener-Waterloo. They saw $4.5 billion of new construction um, an $846 million increase in property value along the corridor. And I think even more importantly than that, you know, some of the criticisms of of LRT is that people aren't going to want to go downtown and, uh, that's not been the case in KW. They saw 30,000 more people living along their LRT corridor. There was another uh, about 150 restaurants that were opened and about 200,000 more people attending events along the Kitchener-Waterloo LRT corridor. So it's a it's a major economic driver for their cities. And also in ridership, uh, some really surprising stats for the KW ION system that, Immediately upon opening, in the first three months, they saw a 13% increase in ridership system-wide. And the one stat that really surprised me, and and I think would blow people away in terms of ridership, is is from 2018 to 2023, they saw a 20% increase in ridership system-wide. And that is over COVID. So every other uh, transit uh, authority that I know of (laughs) has had a huge drop in ridership over COVID except for Kitchener-Waterloo, which is an amazing statistic.
0: So can what is happening in KW be replicated here in Hamilton, or, or do we have a different set of circumstances that present a different challenge?
5: Well, I think that's the goal, of course, is, is to take what, we've, what we can learn from Kitchener-Waterloo as best practices, and also some of the perhaps mistakes that have been made in Ottawa and in, uh, in Toronto as things not to do. Um, You know, you mentioned off the top about the importance of streetscaping and landscaping and the vibrancy of the LRT corridor. And I think that's something that we are already working on right now that will be quite different than the original plans. Also, you know, he talked about the importance of making sure that you get all the underground work right, right up front, because it's really hard to come back and redo that later. We're already starting on re- utility relocations for LRT, so I know that uh, our staff are paying very close attention to that. And then there's also some discussion about the uh, the model of uh, procurement for the LRT, with the Kitchener-Waterloo system being a full design, build, finance, operate, and maintain. Right now we're talking about whether the City Hamilton and, and ATU uh, has a component in the operations of LRT, but interesting, KW. Uh, is fully
0: private. And so are you leaning towards that being the case here in Hamilton, if you had to vote on that today?
5: Well, I don't know. I, I think there's some definitely some uh, lessons that Kitchener-Waterloo uh, learned about why, and, and it was explained why they went to a fully private system, so that you have a fully integrated uh, service delivery with one person that's responsible for the entire system. So obviously, if the person that's building it is also responsible for fully uh, operations and maintenance, they have a vested interest that it's uh, a a unified system that operates uh, as efficiently as it can be. But, you know, I'm going to be looking for what our staff's recommendations are, and uh, I'm going to follow the professional recommendations from our staff.
0: We have a couple more minutes with John Pauldenko, counselor for Ward 8 in the City of Hamilton, who's was to talk about uh, Hamilton's LRT subcommittee back on Monday, a hearing from the former top administrator in Waterloo about uh, lessons learned from that community's LRT. And by all accounts, it is going swimmingly well in KW. At last check, we still need to hire a contractor to build this thing. Any update on that and Any update on when construction will actually begin?
5: I think that's the $3.4 billion. (laughs) Um, So right now, Metrolinx is planning on splitting the Hamilton LRT procurement into two sections. So they're going to do all of the underground work, the relocations first, all the utilities, and then they're going to come back in and, and actually build the the tracks and the stations. Uh, So it'll be kind of two stages and, and multiple phases throughout the city. So we are already starting on some of those utility uh, um, relocations underground, uh, but obviously, you know, we're we're all very anxious to actually get started on this project. But I think what was clear from the kitchen of Waterloo example is that you really want to be as diligent up front as you can be to make sure that you're you're planning before you actually break ground, and I think that's what we're doing now.
0: And any guesstimate as to when we're going to see the tracks being laid? Is this a 2025 thing, 2026?
5: Well, it really all depends on the provincial government. Um, you know, they, they've budgeted the funds for Hamilton's LRT. I'm sure, you know, we've had many discussions about uh, whether the current budget is sufficient. I'm sure they're going through the numbers very carefully right now. Uh, but again, you know, it's it's up to Metrolink to to uh, to put those contracts out to procurement. and. I think there's also, you know, they they want to be as careful as they can be that when they actually do go to tender, uh, that, you know, that that the scope and scale that they're they're offering for bidding is, you know, what people are actually going to deliver and that there is a market availability of uh, contractors that can do this work.
0: JP, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. John Paul Denko is a counselor for Ward 8 in the city of Hamilton, reflecting on Hamilton's LRT, which, who knows, in a few years' time, will be up and running.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: A big day here in the city and well beyond, because today is Pioneer 3 Cent a Liter Day. Yes, it is back today. Whether you're filling up the tank or even topping up the tank, three cents from every liter of fuel that you buy today at Pioneer will be donated to the 900 CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. And we can't thank Pioneer enough for jumping on board each and every year. And here to talk about it is Michael Stevens from Pioneer. Michael, good morning and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Hey, good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Kind of feels like Christmas morning. It does. It
6: does. It's a big day. It's been a tradition now for years, so we're excited to get it started.
0: Yeah, and over 33 years, more than half a million dollars has been donated. That's absolutely tremendous.
6: Yeah, no, we're we're quite proud of it. You know, it's a strong community. It's where we started, so it means an awful lot to us to be able to give back. So it's just been a wonderful, wonderful partnership.
0: And that giving back to the community, I know there's a lot of organizations and companies who make a commitment to say, you know what, we're going to give back in a certain way. And this is a really unique way to do so. And I, you know, I really applaud Pioneer for many years ago, the Hogarth family said, you know what, this, this is important to us.
6: Yeah, no, we, we appreciate that. So, I mean, it, you hit the nail on the head. So it all started on up games in 1956 with the family, the Hogars, and, uh, you know the the community has stood behind us for all those you know sixty seven years and uh it's been an incredible incredible relationship we've had with the community so it's an honor to be able to get back to a, a wonderful charity like this
0: and uh it certainly comes at a, a great point as well I mean I know you don't control the gas prices, but I mean we're doing okay in that regard,
6: yeah, it has. The last couple of weeks have definitely been down somewhat. So, you know, the pricing has been a little bit easier for folks heading into the holidays, and I'm sure it's much appreciated. So it is on our end as well. It's great. It's nice to see it down a little bit.
0: Yeah, and, and over the years, I know I've tried, I know some of our listeners and talking to them as well, when Pioneer 3 Cent a Liter is approaching, we try to time our gas usage so we're at the lowest level possible on this day. It's it, easier said than done some years.
6: It is, it is. So we... Last year we had a phenomenal year. I think we earned a little over twenty eight thousand yeah. dollars. A couple of years prior we were at eighteen nineteen. So, last year we managed to really get the word out well, and and it just worked out fantastic. So, you know, I'd love to set the goal of approaching thirty this year. So, with the support of everybody, hopefully, fingers crossed, we can have just a phenomenal year for everyone.
0: And that thirty k level could be realized because when we had you on last a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that more pioneer locations are participating this year.
6: Exactly. So we went from 39 to 44 locations this year. You know, all the way from Bramford through up to Bramford, or I'm sorry, Burlington, Hamilton, all the way down through Niagara. Uh, there's there's quite a spread there. With 44 participating locations, so with the additional five, it gives us a real shot. Of, uh, of
0: achieving that goal. It's a great goal cool to have. and It's also a good chance if uh, our listeners are not familiar with Pioneer to visit it, perhaps for the first time, get a journey card. You're going to get lots of points when you visit Pioneer, and it's a win-win-win.
6: Yeah, thank you very much. We've even launched Aeroplan on our sites now, so it's a real exciting time for us, and uh, we're quite proud to be in the partnership once again this year. I really appreciate your time.
0: As you, Michael, thanks for joining us today, and uh, good luck today. Uh, hope, hopefully, we'll uh, reach that 30k goal.
6: I appreciate it, sir.
0: Thank you very much. Michael Stevens is with Pioneer. It is three cents a liter a day, all in support of the 900 CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Three cents from every liter of fuel that you purchase today is donated by Pioneer to the Children's Fund. And as you heard, over the last 30-plus years, more than half a million dollars has been donated to the Children's Fund. And we take that money and send it to 30 local organizations in town that help less fortunate children throughout the year with uh, special programming or Christmas hampers, food if it's the food bank, Uh, your donations really go a long way. You can also make a monetary donation by grabbing your cell phone, getting on that text app, and text the word DONATE to 30333, and you can make a $10 or $20 donation. You can also donate on our website at 900chml.com. Click on the Children's Fund banner or the Tree of Hope banner or even the Operation Santa Claus Toy Truck banner, and you can donate via PayPal or Canada Canada Helps. Or you can visit us here at the radio station. We're at 875 Main Street West. Bring some cash. Bring a check. Made payable to the 900 CHML Children's Fund. And you can also bring in new unwrapped toys. Our front foyer has a giant Christmas tree, a lot of toys under the tree that people have donated. It's a great uh, office Um Uh, endeavor. If you have a bunch of people at the the workplace who want to make a donation, uh, strike up a toy drive. Contact us here at the radio station. We'll come and pick up the toys, or you can have them delivered, whichever is easier. We thank you for donating each and every year to the 900 CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: ADB Canada has released its annual time-off tax survey, and it shows that we as Canadians put in some extra time, extra hours at work before we go on vacation and after we go on vacation. You have probably been in the scenario. You know, you're taking a vacation, you're you're getting all the stuff you need to do at work before you take that time off. Because after you come back, you don't want to have to deal with that stuff or maybe you have a deadline. And even Many times after you come back from vacation, you head over to your email and you're like, oh my gosh, I got 7,800 emails to get through. This year's survey also explores how the burden of the current cost of living is affecting our travel plans. Heather Haslam is the Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Heather, good morning. How are you?
7: Wonderful, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on today. How is this time
0: off tax measured?
7: Well, we go out to working Canadians and get a uh, sample size that is representative. We do this across the country. And we ask them simple questions from a survey perspective. We work with uh, Maori Blue. And the questions are around how much time, first of all, are you taking your vacation? And then if you are taking your vacation, how much time are you having to put in Extra before and after, right? This this time off tax, if you will. And what we found was some good news, Rick, this year, um, as well as still some cautionary news. So, first of all, we found that thirty percent of workers say that they actually haven't put in any extra hours before or after. Awesome. So they're actually taking uh, some vacation, and they don't have this burden of that extra you you said some ridiculous amount of email when they come back. They're not having to carry that. Unfortunately. 70% clocked an average of 18 hours of extra work in order to prepare for or return from their vacation.
0: Ouch. That's like two days in a little bit.
7: It's it's huge. Now, the good news is it's less than last year. We're down two hours, which is really good. Um, and, it, and it's saying, you know, Canadians are investing an average of um, this 18 hours versus 20 last year but it shows a significant decrease. You know, in 2020, workers were reporting 34 hours of extra work. So we've come way down, which is very good. Um, It it begs, though, the question that it's still a significant amount of time, 18 hours to your point. So how is it that we can support people to take the time off that it is that that they need, as well as not deal with the burden of um, these extra extra times, the time off tax?
0: That that, that's quite the difference, though. Thirty four hours in 2020 down to 18. Um, I'm assuming the pandemic and working from home has kind of alleviated some of this work.
7: Um, You know, we 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 dive into and through the pandemic, we certainly asked these questions and and understood that there was still a decrease. You know, the perception is and we guess that Um, During the pandemic, we got used to actually taking a break because uh, we weren't going away on vacation. Vacation, when we weren't traveling, uh, we still needed to take time off when everybody was at home. And so we really started to build this muscle of being able to look after ourselves and take some allotted time and not have the burden of all this extra time off tax that we're putting in. What we did find this year, though, is that nearly a third, so 31 percent of workers in Canada, said that they've actually already used their entire allotted vacation for 2023, which is great. That's great. Unfortunately, we've got a lot of people who are not taking their uh, their vacation. So what I will tell you is that pre-pandemic levels were in the 48 percent were taking their vacation. We're now down to 31, and we also look at while most workers in Canada. Are reporting that they're using at least half of their vacation time. A third, thirty-two percent, said that they took less than half, and thirteen percent of our working Canadians said that uh, they didn't take any time off at all. And so, why I say that that's cautionary is because it's really important to um, to take our to take the breaks. Right, you're better uh, for all of us listeners when you've had a little bit of a break to recover, disconnect. Um, you know, reflect and look after the things that are in your life outside of your work.
0: In our remaining sixty seconds, um, the higher cost of living has impacted well pretty much our entire lives. How is it impacting travel?
7: So uh, similarly to last year, a good sixty-five percent said that we're, that they're not going to travel this year. When we dove into why. Um, what we found is that an average of three in ten workers in Canada are considering postponing or canceling upcoming travel plans, and specifically due to the burden of the current cost of living. So it is impacting uh, people's willingness to uh, to travel, um, and certainly we're still uh, suggesting, given the the difference in um, the amount of people taking time, that the burden of of you know how much groceries cost and everything else is certainly impacting people still taking needed time off and uh, and certainly restricting some travel.
0: Great information from Heather Haslam, VP of Marketing at ADP Canada. Thanks for sharing details of this time off tax.
7: Thank you so much, Rick. I do hope that you get a break this year.
0: I have and I uh, certainly will over the holidays. And you as well. Thank you. That's Heather take Haslam care. from ADP Canada. Really, yeah, it's troubling to hear that 13% of Canadians according to the survey did not take any vacation this year. That's tough. I know that's an improvement from the 17% from last year, but still it's a lot of people not, you know, taking stock of where they are and and my assumption is that they just can't afford to take any time off. Right? They're working day in and day out probably making some minimum wage, and think, yeah, if I take some time off, I'm not going to get paid, and I need to pay the bills.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
2: I'm a sucker for this time of year. The whole world's about that Christmas cheer. People shopping, lights are popping, it's almost here.
0: That is a song from a new Christmas album out now from juno nominated Canadian singer-songwriter Susie McNeil, who just happens to be joining us now here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Susie, good morning. How are you?
2: Good morning.
0: Tell us about your new <laughs> album. This is cool.
2: Oh, thank you. Um, I already have, I, I did another Christmas record like 10 years ago, I guess. So I figured it was time to do another one. Um <laughs> <laughs> i i'm mrs christmas so i i had already written a bunch of i love writing holiday songs they're like so fun and wh- um, why is that so like, i had already written a bunch like i w- wrote one during covid i wrote one for my son when he was born because he was born in november hmm. so it's called christmas came early and then i had sort of enough that i was like let's round this out with you know, a bunch of traditional ones and, and the album was born. Is it easier
0: to write a Christmas album or is it, or is it tougher?
2: I find it easier. I mean, it, I think the pressure's on that it has to be like good and classic, you know, that like I say, there's more sort of long-term pressure, but, there's only so many things you can say, right? And it's all the fun stuff. Like you're, you're writing about fireplaces and hot chocolate and you know, all the good stuff.
0: Yeah. Do you have a favorite song on this album?
2: I would say snow, snow, snow is one of my favorites. I do a, this is Hamilton, right? Yeah, I do. Um, a duet with Brian Mello. Yeah. So he's a big Hamilton guy on the record. I really like that song, too. It's called Mistletoe Miracle. He sounds awesome on it. But no, I kind of like them all. My best, my favorite, like traditional would be Oh Holy Night. I put that one on there because I love it.
0: We had Brian on the show uh, last week talking about his new single, Middleman. It's nice to have that, that, that connection. There you go. Yeah.
2: Small world. Uh, what's next
0: for you? What's on the docket?
2: Um, well, I, I have a lot going on. I, I play a lot sort of, of corporate shows. I, I still have a band I play with in Nashville. We're going, actually, I get to go for some reason, there's a bunch of like Florida and Mexico gigs in the early next year. So that I'm happy about that one. <laughs> um, I, you know, I did, I heard you mention, I played with Steven Tyler, but I also toured with Aerosmith. So, yeah, you know, they're supposed when Steven heals, he's supposed to you know, pick that back up because we had, I mean, I, it was the beginning of a world tour and we only did three shows. So I know that they definitely want to get back out there. Um, and then I'm probably going to do, I'm liking making this record things. So I'm probably going to do like a a proper record next year, too. So lots going on.
0: Well, you're pretty good at it. That is for sure. After listening to some of the songs on this new album, Snow, 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 and you can get it wherever you get your favorite music. We're in discussion with Susie McNeil, Juno-nominated Canadian singer-songwriter. And you mentioned Aerosmith, and I know you only had a brief time with them, but was that sort of an eye-opener? Here's these, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers doing their thing. Did you learn a lot?
2: Oh, yeah. Like the full history of it is I was in a that same Nashville band I, I mentioned and <clears throat> I was in it with my husband, who was awesome. We took our baby on tour and stuff. So we played with Steven when he did his solo tour and he did a solo album for the first time when he was like 68 years old, which <laughs> is pretty cool. And then he asked me to come and sing back up for Aerosmith in um, Vegas when they did their residency there. So I had been singing with them for a couple of years. And it is very much exactly what you like. It didn't get old when I would go out in the, you know, the big stadiums and stuff and it would literally take my breath away. And, you know, it definitely also was a an interesting like it really what is rock and roll and just the way they are truly like legendary rockers so it's like really cool to watch that whole thing it, it was wonderful
0: well it's nice to see that you continue to spread uh, your cheer through the holiday season and continue to knock it out of the park with some of your hits and looking forward to the next album that comes uh, from you Susie. thanks for the time today and best of luck with this one. I'll-
2: Thanks so much. Susie
0: Take McNeil. Care. You too. Susie McNeil is a Juno nominated Canadian singer, songwriter. Check out her new album, Snow, Snow, Snow.